Welcome to uh, this, uh, our 186th, I can't believe it, uh, webinar. Today's topic is caregiver liability and criminalization and emerging threat. And a really, really critical topic. And we're really blessed uh, to have you join us. For those that have not joined us before, I'm Charles Denham, I'm chairman of TMIT, and I'll be uh, kind of the master of ceremonies today and, and uh, orchestrate uh, having these wonderful speakers uh, share their thoughts with you. For those of you that are on the podcast, uh, you may go to www.safetyleaders.org to download slides that are associated with the audio. For those of you that are watching online, there'll be uh, more and more resources that'll be placed on the page. And those of you that are live, we, we welcome you and thank you for joining us. If you don't have the slides, go to www.safetyleaders.org and you can see the opportunity in the upper right quadrant of the screen to be able to download the slides. Uh, we have a terrific set of reactors and speakers today on this topic. Uh, we have uh, Jennifer Dingman is our voice of the patient. We have John Nance, the best-selling author and a, ter a terrific expert in both aviation and healthcare chief Adcox, Bill Adcox from MD Anderson, the chief security officer and the chief of police at the University of Texas Health Science Center. We have Christopher Jerry, who's been championing the cause of patient safety after losing his beautiful daughter uh, to a preventable systems failure. We have Heather Foster, and she is the 2018 winner of the uh, Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award, and she'll be live for, uh, with us from uh, Colorado uh, in the Rockies. We have uh, another JD, uh, John Nance is a JD, and we have, um, uh, we have David Morris, who's a leading forensic psychologist, as well as a JD, and we have uh, Dr. Greg Boats, who is our clin chief clinical advisor and both a full professor at University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center uh, and, and an adjunct professor uh, at Stanford Medical Center, having done training there and also a fellowship in, uh, in uh, uh, simulation. And so uh, it's a, a real pleasure to have uh, you, you um, uh, join us uh, uh, today with uh, uh, many patients and families. And we have Jennifer Dingman who will uh, open us uh, today. Uh, Jennifer uh, also is a winner of the Global Patient Safety uh, Award in honor of Pete Conrad. She served in many capacities with federal agencies on many committees. Uh, and programs, and most noteworthy, she was involved with a small team that have worked every other week uh, for more, more than 12 years to get the hospital-acquired conditions over the goal line with uh, the Centers uh, for Medicare and Medicaid, counting lives saved and dollars saved. So we're so blessed to have her open us today and set our course. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for having me. I have long been a believer in system being the problem of medical errors. I believe we are going 10 giant steps backwards by criminalizing clinicians and providers who make mistakes and are arrested or, or pressed criminal charges against. Instead of looking at the system, instead of fixing the system, we're just moving backwards. And I think this is sending a really terrible message, not only to clinicians and providers, but also to patients. It's a very dangerous time that we're living in right now, and it really bothers me. Thank you, Jenny. We really appreciate your help and all you do for, for us and patient safety and all you continue to do. So Jenny will also join us later as a reactor. 
Um, we uh, are working uh, much more diligently on our social, social media uh, presence, and this webinar, as our other webinars, will be ported over shortly to, uh, to being podcast available uh, in separate sections and the opportunity to uh, actually take advantage of these wonderful speakers. Um, our purpose, mission, and values, uh, just as a brief introduction for those of you that don't know us, is our purpose is we'll measure our success by how we uh, impact or enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Uh, our mission is to save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. And our core values, which we try to live every day, and all of us uh, try uh, and we all fail, uh, and, and that is an integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. And these core values really are in sync with what we've got to do to uh, do a better job of helping protect our caregivers. Uh, for those that don't know us, uh, we uh, have evolved over 37 years uh, into having 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities and 500 subject matter experts. Uh, we will have a link that will be able to tell you more of our story, which we don't want to belabor today, but we've had the opportunity of helping lead uh, measures development, uh, uh, the first uh, LeapFrog group survey, uh, and been blessed to have uh, terrific contributors to uh, the work we're doing. Uh, conflict of interest is absolutely critical to us. We want to let everyone know two things. One of them is that none of our speakers uh, will, are, will uh, have any conflicts of interest to declare no funding for this program directly, indirectly, or in an affiliated uh, manner has been received from pharmaceutical or device companies. Um, and the other thing we want to make sure that people understand, we're talking about legal issues. We will talk about patient safety issues and cases that have occurred um, Every one of our speakers' opinions are opinions of their own. They're not opinions of the organizations that uh, they work with. And everyone wants uh, you to understand that we do not have all the knowledge regarding the cases of criminalization that we may use as illustrations. Uh, and uh, that uh, we're at the beginning of the beginning of understanding what we can do to help protect caregivers and patients from this issue. Um, so let me kind of kick this off very quickly and, and state that Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Gregory Boats and Chief Adcox, a number of leaders from the Mayo Clinic, UCSF, uh, University of California, Irvine, Harvard, uh, a number of uh, great medical centers have participated in the development of what we call uh, an emerging uh, in a, an emerging threats community of practice. Now, interestingly, uh, we, we did this prior to and developed this prior to the COVID crisis. And then we found ourselves with one of the emerging threats that we had identified. And there are approximately 30 uh, of these threats uh, and a number of them really overlap with what we're talking about today. Uh, one of the principles that we follow uh, in structuring and using systems engineering techniques is the, are the four Ps. Uh, that's prevention, both primary and secondary. How do we prevent events from happening or harm, in this case, uh, to caregivers uh, through criminalization? Primary means uh, prevent them at all. Secondary means prevent the harm that may occur if criminalization or um, if a caregiver uh, finds himself in one of these predicaments. Uh, preparedness means being ready, a state of readiness. Protection is when, as we say, boom happens, when something like what we will talk about happens, protection of one's career, one's family, mind, body, spirit. 
And then really importantly, which is what we're trying to do now is just sort out, we're stunned by the events of the last few months, performance improvement, which, uh, and we, we actually learned, uh, learned uh, at, at the, at kneeling at the feet of Don Berwick and Carol Harridan and Roger Reeser and many of the pillars of patient safety that taught us uh, uh, what to do, Tom Nolan uh, on performance improvement. Today, we're going to talk about unintentional harm to patients through errors of omission or commission. Uh, we, we're very familiar with and have a deep dive, undertaken a deep dive in the Julie Tao case, the Eric Kropp case. Uh, we only know what has been reported uh, on the Vanderbilt case. And so uh, today, uh, what we want to do is we're starting out on a series. There will be a series of initiatives, and we're going to provide an opportunity for you to sign up if you'd like to participate with us in a series focusing on this issue of criminalization and liability. But what is really, really important are, are not the answers we have, but the questions. And the first one is, well, who's at risk? And the answer is caregivers and public safety responders are all at risk uh, for professional liability uh, and potential risk when they care for others. These are firemen, EMS, Good Samaritans, the, the police, emergency uh, medicine departments, as well as our acute care hospitals. So the issue is who's at risk? Everybody, uh, every, everyone is at risk. And it's really important that we recognize we're all at risk. Everyone is at risk. Secondly, what do we need to know now? We don't know enough right now. Fortunately, we've got John Nance, who's a JD. We have uh, uh, a recorded message uh, yesterday from David Morris, also a JD. But there's a lot we don't know about what we need to protect our caregivers, their families, and patients from um, the consequences of professional and personal liability. How do we prevent this personal liability harm? So if we look at the four Ps, how can we prevent it, both primary and secondary? How do we prepare? How do we maintain a state of readiness uh, for personal liability uh, threats that might occur in the process of delivering care? How do we protect ourselves when the event happens, when unfortunately a, a criminalization or less than criminalization, an organization uh, decides that you're the bad apple and they want to protect the apple barrel and now you're uh, at enormous risk, which never is criminalized. So we're talking about caregiver liability that is not just limited to criminalization, but um, uh, improper termination and, uh, and, and improper treatment regarding advancement, budgets, uh, much broader than just pure criminalization, which we all know is much more rare than these other issues that are also uh, critically important. Um, today, and we will look forward to having leaders from these organizations speak to us, but the first thing that we want to draw your attention to are terrific papers, and I, I have to single out the ISMP uh, paper regarding uh, the uh, the case at Vanderbilt as beautifully written, very clear, very detailed. It also provides links to a deeper dive analysis of the processes that were at play that led to the unfortunate uh, and what, uh, what we believe was a system failure. Uh, we don't believe there was intent. We don't believe that, uh, that the caregiver in this case from everything we've read, although we're not experts and we're not legal experts, uh, that uh, this was a, a typical 
medical error we see every day that's rooted in our systems. Uh, David Marks uh, wrote an article uh, through his Just Culture company uh, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We recommend all three of these papers. We won't go through them in detail, but we also want to reference a couple of a, a few other papers that kind of address some of these issues. And we're really blessed to have John Nance uh, with us today. He was a co-author of our NTSB for Healthcare. Uh, I know he'll address some really critical issues. Disclosure after a bad event. And uh, Sue Sherrod and Nancy Conrad, the wife of Pete Conrad, Jennifer Dingman, who's with us today, uh, wrote uh, the, uh, that article. And then Story Power, Dennis Quaid uh, and I, and Julie Tao wrote an article that addressed these events. Imagine that, that a caregiver who was involved in harm and a parent of children that were harmed um, and the power of stories. And th the issue is the power of stories can go both ways. Uh, you'll find as we talk about the narrative and how stories are told in criminalization, that stories are not only the secret weapon to protect you, but the secret weapon to potentially hurt you in a court of law and in the court of public opinion. At Trust the Five Rights of uh, uh, the second victim, and I'm grateful I wrote this article because it brought Heather Foster uh, to our door, who's been just a terrific leader uh, in, from the front line and helping us in nursing, COVID, uh, a whole host of areas, a real champion for patient safety. And then learning from every death, which really um, uh, is a terrific paper I call uh, Gene Huddleston, the next Don Berwick. And these are, these are articles that you might find helpful uh, in the Journal of Patient Safety, all of them we will have posted and all of them we have copyright authority. I, I received copyright authority to be able to distribute them when I was the editor in chief of the journal. So let's shift gears for a moment and talk about one of the most important, before we start to get into the nitty gritty of criminalization and these other issues, just the, the sheer power, the, the, the power uh, that we have of uh, forgiveness. And we're so grateful to have Christopher Jerry here to comment. And we wanna start right out of the gate to address um, the incredible power of forgiveness when one of these bad events occurs, regardless of the legal issues, the court issues and others. And I'll play uh, a section from our Discovery Channel film and then have Chris comment and, uh, and share his thoughts right in our open. Julie Tao, a nurse involved in the accidental death of a young mother, and pharmacist Eric Kropp are part of a growing group of caregivers who've been criminally indicted for hospital accidents. Very predictable, system-driven mistakes. Eric was incarcerated for the death of a little girl, Emily Jerry, who died of a lethal injection of a salt solution during her cancer treatment. If I had a chance to make amends and talk with Mrs. Jerry, the first thing I would tell her is I am so deeply sorry that what has happened with Emily. I never intentionally or tried to hurt her daughter. I wish I was in her place because I'll never forget your daughter. She's in my heart and in my dreams. I'm really sorry. And I hope you can someday forgive me. Thanks. Well, I think the criminalization is, is a terrible thing. And in every case, uh, there were obvious explanations uh, for why the mistake happened. And those explanations all have to do with the systems they were working in and the institutions that were responsible for those situations. What was Emily like as a little girl? She could light up a room when she walked in. Emily could always put up a smile on your face, always. 
My heart sank because I knew that she had to have just gone through so much pain. It wasn't like she was overdosed on, on an opiate where she would just go to sleep. She felt it had to be very, pain. very painful for her. And um, I think that was the toughest thing to deal with, Chuck, was knowing how much pain she was in. Careful research has shown that about 95% of all harm to patients, all patient injuries, happen at a systems level. Only about 5% is human error. But what are these systems? What are the threads of the safety net that would have saved Emily Jerry's life? It's exciting to know that this is almost like a new chapter in your life, isn't it? Yes, definitely. In May of 2011, Eric Kropp and Chris Jerry came together in an incredible moment of forgiveness. Chris, I want you to meet uh, Eric Kropp. Hi. Sir. Good to see you. You too. This healing that can occur is the kind of healing that everyone needs. Yes. Yeah. So often we don't have an opportunity for this. Yes, I am. I know it was a mistake, buddy. Yeah. I do. Thank you. I know that in my heart. And I, I want you to move on with your life. Thank you. But I want you to know that I, I forgive you from the bottom of my heart. And I know that's what Emily would want me to do. Thank you. Emily wants us both to move on. Thank you. And make some good come out of this. I hope that something comes good out of this. A lot of things good will come out of it. That day, they began a journey to save lives together through Emily's story. You know, it's all about forgiveness of budgets, plans, and accidents of the past. Forgiveness and healing are about the mind-body-spirit connection. I can't watch that tape. It takes me back to the day when uh, we we were there. I can't watch it without it touching my heart. Uh, our cameramen and our crew uh, are very used to, uh, and those that we hire are very used to seeing people on camera act one way and then act another way, and they get to be pretty jaded. Uh, but the heartfelt forgiveness in the room brought tears down the cheeks of everybody in the room. And I just want to thank you, Chris, uh, for uh, your wonderful leadership. Uh, Chris is the president and CEO of the Emily Jerry Foundation. Um, I called him to ask him if he would, uh, if he had thought about forgiving uh, Eric uh, before this happened in Cleveland. And um, and he immediately said uh, that he'd been thinking about it, been praying about it, and uh, we were we were so blessed to be able to have that time together. So, so Chris, I just want to thank you for your courage to keep reliving a terrible event in your life to help other people. You're truly one of uh, one of our heroes, and I just want to thank you for for that, and thank you for the forgiveness. And the final thing is, is that um, the next morning. People don't know it because it's. I'm not sure it's in a film, but the next morning we were um, at the Cleveland Clinic and I was giving a talk and I put Emily's picture up and you and I asked you and Eric to sit at the front of the room and announced that you two had decided the day before that you were going to work together to tell the story, the story of healing, the story of system failure, and, and go out and do that. You got a standing ovation from the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic, one of our great medical centers, and then you went on to do that. So we'll talk about system failures later, but Chris, can you just address this issue of forgiveness and a little bit about what you and Eric uh, have done? Yes. Um, thank you, Chuck, uh, for giving me this opportunity. But I think more importantly, um, I want to thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart um, for 
our friendship back then now over uh it's been over 10 years wow. uh, i remember us having a few very long conversations about this forgiveness aspect and uh i think i i i don't think i know for a fact i had saw the initial interview that you had done uh with eric in, in when he was incarcerated and um and uh i had told you i was just had established the emily jerry foundation and and in emily's honor um and uh i had told you i said chuck at some point you know i i want to have the opportunity to publicly forgive eric for what had happened and set the record straight and you said um Chris, why is that? And I said, because in instances like this where multiple root cause analyses had determined that no one clinician caregiver is responsible, uh, as was the case in, with, with Eric, uh, my thought and what kept me up late at night was the fact that that when when the focus is put on the clinician caregiver a couple years after the fact as it was with eric it takes the focus off of fixing broken systems processes and protocols what kept me up late at night was thinking okay by doing that then the general public thinks, well, we have the person that's responsible, the individual responsible for, uh, you know, this, this horribly tragic death. So we don't need to fix those broken systems. So I thought to myself, how many more people are gonna die the same way my, my beautiful daughter did? And then furthermore, you've got the, the, the human side. Um, I was going through a very difficult time when, when Eric, um, when I was uh, approached by the, the news media um, to do on-camera interviews, when Eric was going through the trials and, and, and uh, through the, the trial, and, and um, I was asked um, to do on-camera interviews. I said, what's this all about? And, and they, the, the first reporter uh, had, had mentioned uh, from a major news network, I uh, said, uh, this is about your daughter, Emily. I said, that news broke a couple of years ago. And they said, um, well, um, well, uh, Mr. Jerry, aren't you aware that, you know, um, criminal charges are being pursued against the, the, the pharmacist involved? And I said, no, I wasn't aware of that fact. Point is, is, at that difficult time in my life, my family, I was going through a horrible divorce, so on and so forth. So I was not only grieving the loss of my daughter, but I was grieving the loss of my family and simultaneously trying to establish the Emily Jerry Foundation. And during that difficult time, I regretted I, I had bowed out of the media spotlight when all of when Eric's trial was 
was happening and declined all the on-camera interviews during that difficult time. And one of the things um, that I shared with Eric after we did this event in May of 2011, when you brought Eric and I together for the first time since Emily's death, um, Eric and I traveled all over the country for about a year or two, did a number of uh, medication safety uh, lectures and presentations um, all over the nation. Uh, um, and it was very well received. We actually became friends. And in becoming friends, I actually, you know, told Eric, you know, about my regret for, you know, if I could go back and change one thing during that difficult time, I would not, I, 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 I would have changed. I, I, I should have picked up the phone and, and called Eric's legal counsel and defended him because it was a complete travesty, I believe, that Eric was um, being vilified for what happened after the fact. That wasn't going to improve patient medication safety in any way, shape or form. And um, I went into that act of forgiveness and I apologize if I'm rambling a little bit. Um, I went into that act of forgiveness with Eric with the sole intention of putting the focus back on fixing broken systems, processes, and protocols in healthcare and taking them off of the clinician caregivers uh, that are submerged working in those broken systems. Well, you know, we are so grateful that you've had the courage to do that, Chris. And I just want to tell you, having worked with Nancy Conrad and Sue Sheridan and Jennifer Dingman and uh, and and uh, Braxton Rell's dad, Steve Rell, there's a certain point where reliving the Sorrell King, there's a certain point where reliving these experiences are detrimental. And I just want to tell you that I'm really proud of you. We're going to come back to you again after we talk about some of these systems. But I, on behalf of all of us, Chris, thank you so much from, from deep in my heart because you know that, that came together. People don't realize it. We'll come into it. We'll talk about the narrative. But we I discovered something down in that lobby when I was walking, when I went with Eric, who was scared to death. And when we walked in that hall, I'll never forget it. And when we went into that big room and the Cleveland Clinic gave to us at the last minute, this beautiful room, um, the, the, the love that you expressed to Eric when I know he was scared to death, he was shaking, he was, sh he was shivering, and that the love that you expressed and you continue to express. So I don't want to belabor it. We're going to get into the issues right now and get going and have John Nance and others speak. But on behalf of all of us, Chris, reliving this and doing this for everybody else is really an act of, uh, 
uh, heroism. I know God leads you. You're a man of faith. And I just want to thank you on behalf of all of us, because I, because I know having worked with so many of these families, that there's a certain point where it's more painful than it is uh, gratifying. So uh, we're going to move on, but I, I just want to thank you so much uh, on behalf of everybody. And, and we'll, uh, uh, and, and we'll come back to you on the systems issues, but thank you so much. Uh, so, you know, you've heard from Chris, uh, uh, you know, the, the, um, the work that he has done is terrific. I mentioned these, these other families. And so, you know, Braxton Rell is the hockey player in the middle. Uh, Sue Sheridan had two heirs in her family, Pat and Cal Sheridan, and she's gone on to do great things. Nancy Conrad on behalf of Pete, Pete Conrad. And it's great news to let you know that Julie Tao, who was on the verge of suicide when we started, we gave her a job to work with us and, and to help her keep from losing her home. Uh, she's now a happy grandmother and joyful and uh, good things have happened with the baby that has now grown up to be a, a young person. So, uh, so there's, you know, there is some, there is redemption. Uh, and uh, she uh, always took the position that it was her mistake. And she owned it much more than, um, than in, it, many of us would think that she should because of the system failures that set, uh, set that up. I wanted to ask, ask David Morris, who's uh, worked at The Hague. Da uh, David is a forensic psychologist. He has worked all over the world in helping reestablish uh, fair and just uh, 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 cultures and programs for law enforcement, for government, uh, also in healthcare. A really terrific guy in his 70s, uh, now, now entering Yale to do an MBA. And he, uh, we've been working with him uh, in terms of uh, work that he wants to do to volunteer to go to, to help the uh, folks in Iran. So here's a man with a heart of an 18 year old uh, who's got the wisdom of a man in his 70s. And uh, I, I'd like to have David just comment on what uh, on this topic of criminalization. David, we are so pleased to have you join us uh, today um, as a forensic psychologist, as a, as a JD who really understands the law so much more than we do. What's your reaction to this criminalization of systemic errors and the predisposition for people to make mistakes and then be criminally indicted and even sentenced uh, and convicted? Dr. Dedham, it's always a pleasure to work with you and to participate in your seminars and um, events. I, I am shocked that, in fact, it's clear failure of systems that were should have been in place and uh, or were not properly put in place and were not properly followed to hold this person accountable, criminally liable, for the, the resulting death. I mean. We're all sorry about the person's death, no question about that. But uh, I think it's a, it's a travesty of justice to actually see the law uh, used in this way. So, David, you know, you are a leading expert in law enforcement and working very closely with us on our public safety net, that being um, those people that are Good Samaritans, EMS, fire, law enforcement, and emergency medicine. Uh, we all are vulnerable, aren't we, when, we, uh, when this happens? And um, are, are we not best advised to get legal counsel immediately if something untoward uh, occurs? Yes. And in the world of public safety, as the world 
uh, health care. There are systems that should be put in place that actually prevent these things from happening. But it's not the individual's fault sometimes when these systems fall and or they fail. And I think that's what needs to be looked at more carefully here and rather than hold the individual responsible. And so, so uh, we're advising people if there is something that may have happened to have uh, legal representation right at the very beginning. Would at you agree? the moment. Right, exactly. You're exactly right, Chuck. That's, when that happens, you want to get legal representation because you simply don't know enough about the law to actually uh, to be able to understand. And your, your genuine offer to help may not be well served uh, uh, legally later on. So be careful. Actually uh, get someone who will be an advocate for you and understands the law. So there are kind of two dimensions to this. One, as caregivers, and I know I felt this way, if, if, if a medical accident would have occurred during my practice, I would have felt that that means that I'm, I think I'm guilty of doing something wrong if I get a lawyer. That's one, concept, one of the concepts. And the other is the concept of the narrative. And in, in the law, we now understand that the narrative is the, per, perhaps the prosecutor's version of the facts that tell a story uh, that is most advantageous to win in court, believing that um, the wins and losses even out. And most of us as caregivers don't understand that someone's going to create a narrative. Is that a fair statement? Yes, no question they're going to. And, and you're right. The, uh, the justice comes out of, uh, it's not exactly the way everybody thinks. Justice is one competent attorney representing the 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 accused, the plaintiff, and another competent attorney representing uh, the public or the, the institution. So it uh, is truly an adversarial relationship. And once you understand that, you really want to get that uh, legal care immediately because uh, it's your, your genuine interest in doing the right thing. Most people in service-oriented uh, jobs, such as public safety and also public health, uh, do want to genuinely do the right thing. So you oftentimes feel, well, I must be done something wrong. That's not, that's not really necessarily true at all. But in fact, the narrative that will be painted on the other side will be their goal is to, to prosecute you. And that is their job. It's not to seek justice. Their job is to prosecute you and use every element of the law and the story to convict you. Your attorney, on the other hand, she or he is to use every element of the law to defend you. And out of that process comes justice. So it's really important to recognize the need to get legal representation immediately. And so, David, final question. So in the, in, in the, in the event of a medical accident like the ones that we are discussing today, there really, right. are, there really should be four lawyers there's likely going to be a lawyer representing the plaintiff, which is the individual that may be harmed. There's right. the prosecutor who may go after a caregiver for, with the criminal um, uh, focus. But then there's the legal counsel of the medical institution where the employee exactly. works. And many right. times we believe that they're representing the employee when they're, 
they're they, not. They, they're not. So yeah. there really are four lawyers, aren't there? Shouldn't there be uh, yes. an outside independent representation of the person who may have made the mistake, the organization where that might have occurred, the plaintiff attorney, and the, the prosecutor? And one of the big dilemmas is that many organizations will seek to settle out of court with the plaintiff and then allow the individual who's the employee to appear to be a bad apple uh, so that they're protecting the barrel, the apple barrel. Is that a fair statement? Oftentimes that does, is what occurs. Well, thank you very much, David. That we, you're, you're always such a faithful supporter of helping the public safety net, and we're very grateful for the expertise that you bring to the table. Thank you. It's good to talk with you again, Dr. Dell. So, uh, David Morris covered some topics that we're going to come back to with John Nance, who's also an attorney and I think has, is so articulate about uh, the law and risk. Uh, we just want to remind you that, uh, that there is substantive uh, information in, in the medical literature that addresses the fact that uh, the majority of these harmful events are system failures and also they defy our reporting systems. And just wanna remind you to read Jean Huddleston's work and uh, consider joining her collaborative. We have no financial relationship with it. We are just honored to have her speak uh, uh, with us and, uh, and help us understand. And when she did a uh, Pareto analysis of uh, uh, comparing what's reported and where the, the real harm occurs, uh, many of them are errors of omission and not commission. And so what we wanna do is just draw your attention to a graphic we've used frequently in our discussions to help people that don't understand healthcare, understand that there are visible and invisible events that occur. Some are very visible, some are invisible. The visible harm, you know, uh, the intention is a big issue. And John, I wanna come back to you once we hear from Greg and from Chief Adcox regarding the very minimal, very minimal number of intentional harmful events that occur uh, where people want to harm somebody in healthcare. They're very celebrated. Reckless administrator or staff behavior on the right there, and then uh, we draw different. And, and we do believe that uh, that uh, that our, we do have administrators that can uh, can make these mistakes as well. And um, it's important that we understand that there are reckless administrative activities that can occur and reckless clinical activities that occur both. And our goal is really to create a, the safest care possible, knowing that errors of commission and errors of omission can be visible. But then there are also the invisible ones, which don't, uh, which uh, which creep in, and we don't understand until we do work like what Dr. Huddleston does when we start to look at end of life and we look at a number of different issues. So there's a real spectrum, and that's why we use the spectrum to really tackle this. Uh, there are threats inside and outside organizations, and our goal is to be resilient and reduce our vulnerability for both inside and outside threats. As we look at COVID and what's happened uh, over the last 24 months, we know that our system has been stretched. Now our system in many states was stretched already with staffing shortages, budgetary issues, and many things that can compromise the things that have to go first, which are quite frequently, as Jennifer Daly has said, 
Um, the first things that go are uh, our nursing staff uh, ratios, uh, patient safety issues, education, and housekeeping. And um, she's often said that uh, you're left with dirty hospitals that are unsafe with not enough staff to care for them. So I think she's been right on there. And uh, But it's important that we understand the context of how these system errors in, in the future. Again, we're really just at asking the questions. Our community of practice, we're going to dig more deeply. But we want to have a structure, a systems engineering approach to how we look at, um, at these issues. And this is what we are going to use in our programs as we go forward. It's a real pleasure to now have both Chief Adcox and uh, uh, Bill Adcox and Dr. Gregory Boats speak today. Dr. Boats is regularly uh, in the ICU on Thursdays. We always have to pre-record him. We recorded him last night, uh, and uh, as well as uh, Chief Adcox with their very fresh uh, thoughts and opinions regarding uh, uh, the issues that, we, uh, uh, that we're going to talk about uh, today. So Bill, you have some terrific insights that those of us in healthcare are really not aware of regarding making uh, a public statement or a statement after an event occurs. Um, your thoughts and, and the concepts that we need to know are terrific. Would you please share those with us? Well, as we discussed before, uh, we in law enforcement, we're real careful uh, that if a employer has compelled their employee to make a statement as a condition of employment, uh, that we're not utilizing that information. Uh, that was usually protected under what's called Garrity versus New Jersey. Uh, we call it the, the Garrity Act. And uh, that, that's something that came out in 66, 67 through the Supreme Court that basically they had some police officers that they ordered them to give a statement or they would lose their job. And then they took the statements and used it as a confession and prosecuted the police officers. And the case was made before the court saying that it was the it, that they really gave a choice between keeping their job and their their, their livelihoods or uh, being criminally charged, and and so they're saying that that you cannot use that statement that's been compelled by order of your employer to keep your job against you in a criminal law. Now you can use it administratively, obviously you could terminate the person. Uh, there's other standards that come up, but you cannot use it to take it before a criminal hearing. Uh, the problem with that is there's a lot of employers that don't tell their employees that they have to give those statements under condition of, of employment. They, a lot of them don't bring it up to where it, where it would fit into a Garrity situation. So if employers basically said, look, we're going to get to the bottom of what happened. We're just going to use it for administrative purposes. However, you are, you are, you know, you're compelled to give a factual and honest statement so that we can get to the bottom of what happened so that we can correct any errors. That's going to be the basis of a highly reliable organization. You know, having having a, a passion towards failure, having a, a look at what could go wrong and what's gone wrong. That's how you fix systems. And and in a lot of the cases, you don't have organizations that go back and track why things were overridden. Having audits done, having people say, "Wait a minute, why are we doing these things?" Uh, yes, it's more. Uh, convenient to do that, but it's not the process that we put in place to protect from accidents. You've got to have systems in place that are that are making you overriding something, for example, uh, to be the 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 something that you rarely would do, but if you do do that, you document why you did. And so it's it's really how do you protect everybody? So Garrity is really about if I compel you as an employer to give a statement, I can use that administratively, but I cannot use that criminally. 
Also, and I'm not giving legal advice here, but also we know in our business as, as professional investigators that if I do use information that comes off of your administrative statement to go find other evidence, then it becomes a thing called a, 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 a part of the poisonous fruit or the poisonous tree. I cannot use that in a criminal court. So everything is tainted thereon. So we're very careful when things come to us, we make sure that they're reviewed by the attorneys, making sure that there is no compelled statements that we use any of that information when we conduct our investigation. Therefore, you wouldn't have certain things that you see today. Uh, the other thing is there's a standard of criminal negligence. That's the lowest standard that really that there is. That's more than just negligence. That's a higher bar. So you'd have to have something more than a mistake. You'd have to have somebody that was say that was was impaired while they were doing their job or somebody that had been uh, corrected on multiple occasions, but chose to continue to make the same mistakes. You know, you have to have something that raises that bar a little bit. So I, I'm not really sure what goes on a lot of the cases. I would say that they're not uh, they're not prolific across the country. I'm, I, I do know and I see that they do show up, but I do think that we have to be looking at systems first and foremost. And secondly, we've got to look at what we can do to be highly reliable organizations and protect our patients at all costs. You don't do that unless you have, you have really good sound uh, practitioners and, and support staff that are willing to do the right thing. And when they make a mistake, they're the ones that stand up, report it, and then, and then it's looked at so that we can correct it right away. And, and, and the organizations should stand up and take responsibility for their employees. That's just my opinion. So Bill, so I'm an employee, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a respiratory therapist, I'm an allied care worker. Uh, somebody's harmed at air occurs. Um, if I presume that I'm required by my employer to make a statement and no one mentions to me that I might need representation, then that could be used in the criminal court as a number of these cases have where that information somehow goes from the hospital to the local prosecutor and then they use it. Well, I'm not an attorney, so I, I don't feel comfortable necessarily answering that. I will say this. Uh, we're very careful about that. And we, we will get cases that come to us through a compliance, through legal, through other places. And that's one of the first things we, we do a multiple test. And one of the first thing is, was an employee compelled to give a statement? And if they are, we don't accept that statement. We, we, don't, we don't have anything to do with that. We don't want any information from that. And if we investigate, we do an independent investigation on something. Uh, we rarely, in, in my business, we rarely investigate um, um, uh, individuals that are involved in, in, in actions within the hospital, I cannot remember ever being called into a medical mistake. That's just, I, I would personally, as the chief of police, uh, have to do a lot of, 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 of questioning as to why is a medical mistake coming into a criminal area. We've got to correct the medical mistakes. We've got to get the people feeling comfortable to come forward, say that this happened, and in a sense, to get it corrected. If there is a higher bar, then certainly, yes, let's look at it. We have to protect the public at all at all turns, we got to protect them, but you got to get to that higher bar. There is to err is human, and we all have fallacies. And so, why why that's where training comes in. And I think that our, uh, we have Dr. Boats here, who's probably one of the most eminently uh, qualified people in immersive simulations and training, and how to get people not just to be competent at the time of a certification, but how do they stay current and how are they proficient in their jobs? And so, when you speak about highly reliable organizations, you put things into play. Uh, we've heard often talk about just culture. I think just culture in hospitals is an important concept. 
but it but it is it is such that you will be bringing these issues to light so that systems can be fixed that employees can be corrected so that training can occur but that just culture philosophy to the best of my knowledge is not grounded in any type of criminal sanctions or criminal law so i don't know that 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 i've ever heard that that goes together it may but i not something i'm aware of well, great, Bill, and it's important for people to realize that you're not only the chief of police uh, at, at the healthcare in the in healthcare institution there, but you're also the chief security officer. So, uh, you know, uh, it's great to hear your position on that, Dr. Boats. Um, you've you've seen the uh, expression of forgiveness. You've seen the concept of the narrative, and now uh, these great uh, insights from Bill. Uh, can you react for us? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I think it's important to understand that caregivers don't go into their job intending to do harm. If they do, it's pretty obvious that can be investigated and that can move into a criminal arena. But the overwhelming majority of people who are providing care for patients in our hospitals and in our healthcare systems do it because they want to uh, they want to care for people. They want to do the right thing to provide care and and healing to people with, with illness. Systems uh, are very complex. And we know that uh, as the complexity increases, the opportunity for error uh, can strike. You know, we, we know the story about the Swiss cheese. Um, I think that uh, we have spent the last 15 years or so working on the concept that in order to protect our patients and our caregivers, we need to look at the system itself to try to eliminate any opportunities for those errors to reach a patient. And so I think uh, it's really important that we focus our efforts on re-examining the system issues and the role of the caregivers in that system providing care in order to protect our patients. Great, and Dr. Boats, um, you and I have had uh, have looked at cases, experienced the cases, and seen where um, where the personal reputation or performance review of our caregivers is utilized uh, by weaponizing HR for to reduce budgets, to um, paint the picture of the bad apple, uh, to have that kind of impact. Should we not make those people that are the instruments of this kind of activity accountable? Right now they're faceless, they're, we, sometimes we call them sharks in suits if they're administration. And there are, other, uh, and there are others that, uh, uh, that uh, have perpetrated these things. Uh, isn't it time that we pull back the curtain on some of these activities that occur and, and make the people personally accountable, even though they might be the instrument of an administrative uh, leader? Well, I think it's important to state that what I think is my opinion and not necessarily the opinion of my sure. institution, but I believe you're absolutely right. I think as we heard uh, the description of the legal system and the narrative, um, our healthcare leaders have the opportunity to make the narrative in the cases that occur in their institutions. And I, I find it very difficult sometimes when leaders in healthcare institutions uh, behave in a manner that protects the institution and doesn't look out for the well-being of the caregiver who is trying to work within the system that they create. I think there is perhaps a lack of accountability on the part of the leadership 
to have ownership for some of the things that happen in their clinical settings based on the systems that they allow to occur. And so I think we have a lot of work to do there. We spent a lot of time in patient safety working at the bedside. And we've spent a lot of time looking at systems for the care delivery at the bedside. We've even gone on to look at the care of the caregiver to make sure that the caregiver is able to participate in safe care. Because we know if our caregivers aren't well, if our caregivers aren't on their best in providing this care, harm can reach patients. I think the next iteration of that is holding the leadership accountable for the system in which this care is delivered uh, and understand that we have to design systems that will remove some, if not all, at least as much as we can of the risk that's inherent to our complex healthcare systems that can reach patients. That's our goal. Fantastic. And Dr. Boats, um, we've all had the opportunity of, to read the ISMP article and the other articles that we've uh, teed up today. Uh, I found the ISMP article excellent, very well written, and just want to hit a few of the topics and go back to you and Bill and then our, our, live, our live reactors. Um, one of the concepts is the inadequate handling of the trial and the lack of evidence that was presented regarding the system failures, how uh, the uh, honest reporting of this particular nurse was used against her, and, um, and the lack of the use of witnesses to kind of uh, be able to help tell the story, the narrative, if you will, of a caregiver that, yes, made mistakes, but that there were systems that, uh, that were not functioning uh, you know, optimally. Your, your thoughts there, and we'll go back to Bill. Well, first thing, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not privy to much of the information that was presented in the case, or perhaps information that wasn't presented in the case. I think the article that was presented is a very good viewpoint on the issue, especially in describing the difference between the mission for safety in healthcare and what has happened when these things move over into the legal system. It's important to remember, it's been said during this, during this uh, presentation that the legal system is an adversarial system. It's not a system that's looking to protect or to, uh, to not looking to protect or to, to exonerate someone based on their, their particular story. That they are looking at facts and they are looking at information from expert witnesses to try to make the case and let the jury who are the people that will make the decision come to their own conclusions, whether the person is guilty or not. That's not a system that healthcare givers are familiar with or understand. No. And it's important that we don't try to use our mental model of a healthcare system and a just culture to describe what happens in the legal system. That's not the way it works. But I think we need to redouble our efforts, as I've said, to relook at the systems issues that allow these latent errors, uh, these opportunities for error to reach a patient. One of the first questions that I would have, I'm not sure if it was asked at the trial, but how is it that anyone can get a hold of a paralyzing drug that easily from a dispensing cabinet in a clinical area? If that is that easy to do, then mistakes are going to happen. Good intentions are not. 
and perhaps you know, starting there and moving to other areas of the system that allow those things to occur, even if someone had malintent, is a really important focus for patient safety. There are other issues as well. I think criminalizing mistakes that happen in medical uh, environments um, is, is a very difficult thing. It discourages healthcare providers from being open and honest about the issues that go on in their environment that do lead to or could lead to harm in patients. And that's to the detriment of the healthcare system and patient safety across the board. I'm afraid that we're going to see instances where prosecutions take place of healthcare providers for slips and errors of judgment and not intentional that rise to the level of harm to the patient uh, that suddenly become a criminal act. It's like charging the toddler for shooting his brother with a gun because an adult left it open in an environment where the child could get access. I think it's really important to look at the overall system and decide was there really the criminal elements present above and beyond the fact that a medical error occurred that leads one to point to that person as the actor rather than the system. And I'm not sure based on what I know. And again, I don't know everything that happened in the case I'm not sure that that's what happened in this circumstance. Well, thank you very much. And and uh, so, Bill, I know that uh, you and I talked about the term intent. Before we talk about intent, though, just to build on what uh, Dr. Boats just said, was uh, the three of us work on some really wonderfully powerful projects and programs where we use what we call the four Ps. So prevention, uh, preparedness, uh, protection and performance improvement, that feedback loop of performance improvement. And just as, uh, as, as Greg said, um, this sends a chill through the system where nobody is going to want to report anything and we're not going to learn about near misses and we're not going to learn about things that might have happened that didn't, uh, that we could fix. And, uh, and so, Bill, maybe your thoughts regarding um, the critical importance that we need to share this information in high reliability, but then the other uh, concept that you've, uh, you've brought up in our discussions of, quotes, intent, unquote. Well, to get to a criminal charge, you, you've got to have uh, something much more than pure negligence, a, 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 a mistake that, that you don't have. Um, uh, some type of intention or that you've done something that's unreasonable. That's to get to the criminal bar in the state of Texas. I know that. So that's very difficult. And then to, to further get a conviction, there are seven levels of proof. There's the, 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 the highest level is what's called absolutely certainty, absolute certainty. Well, the next level down is called beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what you need to convince the jurors in order to get a conviction. But if you were going to the civil case, you'd go two more layers down from there to just a preponderance of the evidence in order to prove that case. So, so the bar to get a conviction is pretty high. We have to believe in our court systems. We have to make sure that we elect the people that go into those court systems that are not going to have agendas other than to do what they're being elected to do. So it's all about, number one, it's about the people. And so to get something, uh, a mistake that would get into a criminal uh, uh, court, it's a very difficult thing to do. And so we need to look at those very carefully. But I also think that intent is very critical. And that's where we go. We've, we've had, and, and over the, the 40 plus years that I've been in the, in the law enforcement investigations, we've had you know, numerous cases where we've been involved with people in the medical profession where there was really honest intent. 
people went out of their way to do something wrong. It doesn't happen often, but there's intent. It's pretty clear. In a, a lot of these cases, you really need to look at, first and foremost, the system, what's in place, and is the organization doing the right thing in testing those systems, making sure that when you do have something that, that happens or that you have people that are overriding things on a regular basis, it doesn't just become the norm. It, it, you have to figure out why is that happening. And if there's a reason that something's in place, fix it. If not, you need to hold those employees accountable saying, okay, we know you've been doing this. You're gonna, you, this is going to cease and desist and put them on notice. If you do that as an organization, you're doing what's right by everybody. And that's why I think it's really important. And I do believe in a lot of these cases, that article that, that I read, I think that, there, that was well-written. I think that, the, that they were pointing out a lot about just culture. Uh, I think they were, they were looking at what they believe happened in the court hearings. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think at the end of the day, it really comes back to um, they keep mentioning that this, they didn't point out there was many systems failures. Now, I don't know. I'm not an attorney, so I don't know what that would have impacted it. But I do know that they everybody should pay attention to system errors, because first and foremost, that's what protects the patients and that's what protects our employees. And, and I can only tell you that from the institutions that I've had the honor and the privilege to serve, they believe wholeheartedly in, in, in good quality systems, holding people uh, to those systems and, and actually testing those systems. And, and it's, it's important. And, and I, I got to tell you, uh, if there's intent, malicious intent, that's a different story. If it's a mistake, I think you're in a different realm. And I don't believe it belongs in the criminal arena. Uh, that's my opinion. And that's not my opinion of my employer. That's my opinion that, that mistakes are mistakes. But when you have malicious intent, it raises that bar and it, and it could put you into a, a criminal arena. Great. And uh, I just want to reiterate that all of our speakers today are speaking personally, reacting and not experts on any of these cases. We're parenthetically looking at this issue at the beginning of the beginning of what could be done to potentially reduce the risk of criminalization of something that might be systems uh, failures and system errors, because we weren't there, we're not eyewitnesses, we don't have all the detail, but thank you, you know, for sharing that. Uh, Greg, I want to come back to you uh, about this idea of recklessness and this idea of at-risk behaviors. It, uh, one of the things that we have seen is that it's pretty easy today in when you're when you're the armchair quarterback looking back at an error, you can pull up the paperwork and say, well, you know, they had a protocol for this and they had a procedure for that and they had a this for this and a this for this, and therefore it wasn't followed. So it was an at-risk behavior. And now we're gonna tell the story that the person was reckless. Um, do you think that anybody that are outside of healthcare really understand that we are not always following every single procedure or policy because of uh, COVID, because of short staff, and that uh, policies that are written in the, in the handbooks or in the, uh, you know, that, that are laid out uh, are impossible to completely follow with uh, uh, human uh, fallibility and with budgets and constraints and other pressures that, uh, are, that exist. What about this issue of recklessness? I think you bring up a very good point. Um, we understand human factors, especially in the context of teamwork. Um, policies and procedures are the guiding light for how we want to provide care. But all of us as caregivers know 
that when you're working in a very complex, perhaps uncertain system, you can deviate from policy and procedure easily without realizing it. But more importantly, as healthcare givers, we wanna get the work done. And sometimes we use workarounds or we're taught workarounds in our clinical settings by our mentors that help us to get the work done. It appears to be safe and we don't understand the latent risk involved with that. In other arenas, we've talked about the normalization of deviance. It's not a willful act perhaps, but it's a way to get things done. And it's a way to get things done that hasn't caused any harm to anyone previously. And so you don't really recognize in the moment that there's a potential risk for harm to the patient by doing such things. It's very common in our environment. I think more importantly, we don't have a system in healthcare that helps us really to look at performance gaps in real time in care delivery. We don't have the staff, we don't have the tools perhaps to do it efficiently and no one's paying for it. And so there isn't much leadership buy-in to do those things unless they're compelled to do by some regulatory agency or some other issue. By using systems probing, something that I do with simulation at times, we do mock code events in various areas of the institution to look at our ongoing re uh, readiness. We wanna make sure that what people learned in their training is actually what they can do at any moment in time. And if they can't, it's in a circumstance where they're not harming a patient. It's a mannequin or it's a simulated uh, circumstance where we can understand that an error or a, a slip or a mistake has been made and we can correct it in order to narrow that performance gap without causing harm. But unfortunately, we don't have the resources at times to do that in an ongoing fashion. And so these things are going to happen. These, the, the, the holes in the, in the Swiss cheese never close. They may move with some of the efforts we have put in place with quality improvement or performance improvement projects, but we never really close them. And we re never really know whether this is the patient whose physiology is such that it won't tolerate that normalization of deviance and something bad happens. I think it's really important to know that we have to work on high reliability teams with highly reliable people who are focused on error or focused on failure, who wanna do everything they can to eliminate the chance that harm can reach their patient. And doing that requires an investment in the training and the education and the ongoing readiness of our teams all the time for the care of our patients. Your idea about Limited resources and short staffing has been made very clear during the pandemic. We were overwhelmed at times with how we would care for such sick patients, not only in our ICUs, but across our institution with very limited resources at times. That should show our healthcare leadership that we need to invest in the skills for high reliability organizations, but also the practice and the tools to maintain ongoing readiness to make sure that these things don't reach our patients. Well, thank you so much. And uh, la the last question to you both, there are la two, la two issues for both of you. Uh, one of them is um, we have seen over and over again where um, undue pressure has been put on the HR department to be weaponized against the, uh, to, to, pr to protect the organization, to paper the file. It's called papering the file, putting in 
false performance reviews, whatever negative could be done, opposition research against our own employees in order to paint that picture of the bad apple. Uh, and we see it. And my personal belief, and you can comment yes or no, but I believe that we need to hold those people and those leaders accountable for this, that this really is absolutely untenable. Uh, we, it's impossible for us to have a, have a, a trusting and a just culture if this occurs, which happens you know, quite a bit. And then the second thing is, don't we need to educate the attorneys, the defense attorneys who have to defend these people to let them know that I'm a jet pilot. I got to fly when we did our, uh, when we produced our Discovery Channel films with the Blue Angels. Uh, Every single flight, uh, jet flight that I flew with really top flight, uh, uh, top top of the line pilots and corporate pilots, as well as the uh, pilots that that fly the, with the Blue Angels, there's not a flight where we don't come out and we say, okay, these are what we things that we could have done better. And you know, I always remember flying with the with the Blue Angels and having the leader uh, say, okay, let's do a debrief, 43 minute flight hour and a half debrief, leave your epaulets at the door. And these are the things, and the, and the leader says, these are the things, I'll call a safety on myself. I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I didn't do this. And then going around the table, we've got to have the environment so that lawyers understand that it is a system full of these glitches. I, I have never flown a flight where we couldn't have done something better. We know the mistakes we made. Uh, and I've never been in an operation where uh, everything was perfect and we could have done something better. So I wanna maybe come back to you, Greg, right now and then to Bill uh, regarding these two issues. One of them is, should we not make organizations and people accountable for uh, weaponizing uh, paperwork for our employees? And number two, don't we need to educate the lawyers that are going to defend uh, our caregivers? Well, I think to address the first question, absolutely, we need to um, understand that um, our healthcare leadership and our organizations are trying to get the narrative out themselves about the care that's delivered in their institutions. And sometimes that's the, at the expense of the caregivers themselves. And many of those processes involve the use of human resources. And I'm not an expert in human resources uh, practices. I know that they are complex and that there are many nuances to their job that are completely foreign to healthcare providers. But I think you um, are correct in the perception at times of healthcare givers that the human resources uh, approach to the issues that are occurring at the front line seem a little bit pejorative or perhaps um, heavy handed. Maybe they're using their tools that they have at hand to um, get the result that they want. Um, that's speculation on my part, but I can understand based on experiences over my career that it appeared to be that way at times. And to your second point about high reliability organizations, um, Everybody needs to be involved in understanding how the system works. If something moves into the criminal uh, or civil legal system, I think it behooves the attorneys to understand the context of the environment in which these things are done in order to best defend or even best prosecute people who are uh, accused of criminal activity or who have been accused of some wrongdoing that's uh, finding itself in the civil court system. 
unfortunately, I don't see uh, that that's necessarily taking place either in law schools or in many of the attorneys that I know, including family members. Uh, they have no idea what we do or how it works. They, they understand the TV version of healthcare more so than how it's actually delivered. And I think that's another opportunity for healthcare to educate those who are going to defend us, who are going to interpret laws for how we um, practice based on legislation or regulation to help us best apply those standards and those behaviors to the care that we deliver. We can do a lot better in all of those arenas. I'll never forget uh, working with IHI and learning that in an ICU where you work that you might do 20 important things for a patient and on average, there are probably two errors every single day out of about 200 things that you do. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, look at what great work our caregivers do to be able to uh, cover the holes in the Swiss cheese and correct when these things happen. And it's a real crisis if all of a sudden we're gonna shine a light on those two things and then make somebody look bad for the future and ruin their career when it happens every single day. Fair statement? I think that's a very fair statement. And I'll go back to your aviation analogy. I'm not a pilot, but I understand a little bit about aviation. And every time you as a pilot file, file a flight plan, you know, how far off the ground are you before you deviate? It's always being deviated from 100%. You're using, that as the, you're using that as the guidepost to return or to, to reestablish, recenter yourself on where you want to go and how you want to get there. It's the same thing in healthcare. I work in an ICU that is a very data dense, very complex, very time pressured environment with multiple patients having multiple problems at times. And we make mistakes, but as a team, we can recognize those mistakes and correct ourselves. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we use good teamwork and communication skills when we're dealing with problems, especially in our circumstances where there's such uncertainty. People don't come with, a, with an owner's manual that tells you exactly how much tolerance they have for this organ or that organ. Uh, we have to make a mental model and, a, and, and make a decision based on our understanding and our experience and any data that we have at hand about how to best approach a problem. Sometimes we're wrong, but being able to understand that with a reassessment after an intervention, if things aren't moving in the direction we'd hoped, we have to change course. And that's the way we practice. That's what we do. When those teamwork and communication principles fail, bad things can happen to patients. That's been shown over and over again. We need to work hard on understanding the complexity of the system and putting the tools and the training and the ongoing practice in place so that we can both detect problems, intervene appropriately, and reassess to make sure that that's still what we think is happening. And using that cycle on the foundation of effective communication and teamwork to do the best thing we can for patients over time. Great, great, thank you, Greg. Bill, uh, we don't wanna poke at any of the bad actors that might be papering the files of their, uh, of their caregivers or their law enforcement personnel, whatever. Um, so I'm gonna turn it to the positive. Bill, don't you think there's a place for us to encourage top leaders to be able to get the message down to HR and down to mid-level management that that's just off the table? that we, no matter what happened, that we're gonna stick with our core values as Ann Rhodes, co-founder of JetBlue and uh, the writer of uh, Built on Values would say, we've got to live those core values even when it's tough and 
Bill, don't you think there's an opportunity for us to re-inspire our leaders to protect the truth and protect the right of our caregivers and inspire them to maybe do a better job and not let people at the mid-level think it's okay? Well, I think it's always a good idea to, to encourage leaders to do the right thing. Uh, I will say that uh, from a from an investigative standpoint, if people are papering files or doing things, they're, they're leaving trails and stuff. So that's a pretty easy investigative lead. Uh, I will tell you that oftentimes in big and complex organizations, there are legal methodologies that are put into place when they make a decision. Sometimes they get they have to say less than what they need to say to really explain things in order to avoid some legal consequences. So I just know that sometimes those processes come across, they, they really look bad uh, or they, they may be uh, taken taken really poorly by the by the individuals involved, but they may not, in fact, be be legal or truly not a bad thing. Organizations have to have some flexibility. If there are people doing some of the really nefarious things, absolutely, they need to be held accountable. They need to be brought to justice because you're dealing with human beings. The thing to think about in our business in police work, we are the we are the 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 guardians of civil rights. It is our job to protect the victim. It is our job to protect those that whose rights are being violated, and that's we take that very seriously. So, we're very careful about at least. Uh, Everyone has taught this. We're very careful that we're making sure that we proceed when there is obvious, obvious evidence in place. So we're not, you know, the, 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 this, this, this impeding of someone's rights is not going to occur uh, unless there's absolutely something that's grounded in the Constitution and grounded in a law. And that's just the way it is. So going back to, 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 to what we're talking about in terms of, of, of organizations, the message should be there. Leadership should be talking about it. There should be no tolerance for any of the things that you talked about, if in fact that that's occurring. Um, but if, they, if they're doing something that overt, uh, that's out there like you talked about, I could tell you from a professional investigative standard, we're going to be able to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah typically. And, and, you know, this fits RICO. I mean, this is organiza an organization using multiple actors for some financial end or some benefit. Uh, and, and, you know, when you look at the 30 some odd issues uh, that, uh, that fit RICO, it, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a good fit. Uh, the, the final question, uh, Bill, was the same that I posed to Greg. Um, do you think there's an opportunity for us to educate attorneys that will defend those of us that uh, are uh, have this criminalization directed at us to educate our attorneys to let them know there isn't a law enforcement process that you might undertake just like in the ICU or in the operating room or on the flight deck of an airplane where in a typical day, we are making mistakes. We are breaking some of some rules, some policy uh, issues, and that this is normal, uh, and that we just can't pick apart somebody because they didn't do one thing or another. Don't you think it's time for us to educate the legal profession to let them know this is a fallible system? It's a messy system, and it's not cutting corners. It's just the way work happens. Is that a fair statement that we should we should educate these attorneys? Well, let me say this. Uh, uh, that's something I think that, that we should take to the legal profession. I do know that that if you have an issue, there are there's attorneys have different specialization. They have different expertise. You just have to find the one that specializes in the area in which you have an issue. And, and therefore, they should have ample training. But again, it's 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 like anything else. It's like it's like finding a uh, you know, the, the, the best person to do a certain trade or the best person to to treat a certain health condition. Uh, it's sometimes it's, it's, you just need to find the person. 
but if there's a mech and, and I know where you're going with this. So if there's something that can be put together that the legal uh, go into the legal community and ask them if they're interested in this and there's something we want to talk about so that they have a better knowledge and idea that that I think anytime you can help any profession, uh, we should do that. Uh, I really believe we should do that. But again, it goes back to there's some expertise out there if that can handle whatever your issues are, I'm pretty sure. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. We'll have John Nance address the, the process when things do, are going to go to trial, how uh, some organizations might paint a picture uh, and a smear campaign in order to win in the court of public opinion so that it makes it easier uh, at trial. And none of, none of the three of us are attorneys, and we're so grateful that we have attorneys like John and like uh, David Morris to kind of help us understand that part of the process. You all have been terrific and we know that your comments are purely your own all of us yes. none of us know all the details of the cases we're discussing today but we all are at the beginning of the beginning of trying to identify this emerging threat uh to our organizations and i thank both of you very much and are so grateful for all the great work you've done through the COVID crisis and what you're doing to help us in the emerging threats community of practice thank you very much bill thank you very much greg our pleasure one of the things that we need to re recognize is burnout is a critical issue now, and uh, we need to recognize that that is, uh, is, 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 is a vital factor in what's going on. The second thing that we need to re recognize is that the mind-body-spirit connection that we're, when criminalization occurs, um, uh, there is harm to each of these dimensions, including the reputation that you see at the bottom of the page. And so as I go to John Nance, I just want to draw your attention to a book called Corporate Confidential. This is a book written by an HR leader who described how uh, that uh, HR departments in some, not all, but in many organizations are weaponized to actually pr uh, to protect the organization and not at, at the potential risk of the employee. Also wanna draw your attention to uh, the um, uh, program that we had with David Marks and we address just culture and address the various approaches that we can take there. And uh, if we get a chance, we'll come back to the scenarios we will in future webinars where we covered scenarios of uh, uh, people describing uh, uh, having uh, uh, been involved in root cause analyses and uh, them not be fully uh, addressed and people bringing up issues uh, regarding the root cause analysis and then uh, the weaponization of the HR department with a development of what we call papering the file, papering the HR file, which is a, a huge risk now if we are reporting near misses and other things. And also the scenario of PPE, where people spoke up about not having a, enough PPE, resulting in wrongful termination and other things. Uh, this issue of, of the court of public opinion and the narrative, one of the things, and it's happened to me, where information is shared publicly to be able to skew the court, the court of public opinion, it happened to each one of the cases we've seen, in order to set the stage for the narrative, which is really a, a, a terrible thing that can happen to you and your family. Misinformation is, is unintentional mistakes of information that's shared. Disinformation is intent to harm with confabulated and information that's absolutely uh, improper and, and inaccurate. The file may be pa pa uh, uh, papered. Someone may be described as a bad person, the bad apple. And malinformation is sharing information that is private that might uh, put a, 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 a bad slant on someone. So 
John, uh, you're a best-selling author, a pilot. You're an expert in patient safety uh, and in uh, uh, and and very active, uh, a best-selling author. Uh, we have are been so appreciative of you offering uh, a really, really clear vision for right and wrong, and bringing us in, you know, bringing this into focus. You've heard a lot today about the, the, the process that, that goes on, how vulnerable our caregivers are uh, to uh, the system. Uh, John, your thoughts of what you've heard up to this point. John. Uh, this has been very important and uh, very, very good material. But let me, let me get back to a basic here. Criminal law, and I am a lawyer, criminal law across this country uh, is for the purpose of expressing with action uh, the, the uh, inability of society to accept certain behaviors. In the case of anything that approaches uh, basically a second degree, third degree murder, or the usual uh, imposition of, uh, of a, an attempt to get somebody for manslaughter, uh, intent is a great uh, portion of this, and, and it has to be looked at. In some jurisdictions, it is stated at a lower level than it should be. Now, we are not going to be able to wish away the idea that no district attorney, uh, even if educated in a broader sense about, about the completely excuse me, the, the completely uh, detrimental is the word I'm looking for, uh, aspect of prosecuting somebody for a systemic mistake or even an individual mistake that had no intent to harm, uh, we're not going to be able to get to all of them. They're, they're going to be randy examples of somebody who would go off like the person did in Florida and prosecute this nurse. And I don't know all the details of the case either, but what I do know is that that is a direct affront to the greater good and public policy would dictate that they need to pay attention to the greater good. But we're not going to do this on an individual basis. What we need is a model law that clearly defines, and this takes time to work out. You don't have model laws written every day, but takes the capability of a prosecutor to go off half-cocked and prosecute something that really is deleterious and should never be touched by the criminal system. And we, and we can then put that out for state-by-state state incorporation because this is not going to be a federal function. In most cases, this is state law, and state law has to be changed by legislatures, and the legislatures this day and time completely bifurcated politically have to come together on the knowledge that this is going to do nothing but run people underground. It's going to suppress information. It's going to create a, a situation in which something goes wrong. We're not going to find out the details because everybody hides and everybody starts lying. By the way, uh, Bill mentioned something a minute ago about the preponderance of the evidence. And when I was in law school, there was a joke that uh, in, in extreme cases, you might end up uh, trying to get past the fact that the preponderance of the evidence was really the preponderance of the perjury. Unfortunately, here in 2022, that is no longer a joke. We have an entire population of people who don't think that there's any possibility they could ever ever be accountable for lying under oath, whether it's a piece of paper they signed or whether it's sitting on a stand and lying to a judge and a jury. Uh, if we don't get this fixed, our legal system will collapse. No question about it. And that means the district attorneys, instead of coming after nurses and coming after doctors and pharmacists for things that, uh, that absolutely should not be criminalized, need to be prosecuting people for perjuring themselves because we can't have a legal system of predominance of the perjury. And that's where we are today. And this does does affect exactly what we're talking about. John, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, the system's got to change. And Chris, we're going to come back to you. And also, I'll go to Heather first, but then back to you, Chris, as well. But 
we've got caregivers today that are at enormous risk. There are some of us that have been hammered. Do you know my situation where I, I was unfairly treated by somebody that went after me, uh, at, which will come out uh, in some time here in the future. And we need help right now. And one of the things, it's gonna be hard for me to get anybody to convince me that if a, a potential error or an error occurs, that a caregiver should get immediate legal representation. I, I presume you, you agree. Oh, I do indeed. I, I think absolutely that now the situation has become so acute, even if it's rare in terms of the number of errors, the number of mistakes, the number of impacts, and uh, and given a period of time across the country. But if there's one case like this, it's too many. Uh, immediate le immediate help is legal help uh, is exactly what you need uh, if you are a caregiver. And this is something that should be provided by the institution rather than the institution, as in the case of Nurse Hyatt at the in Children's Hospital up in Seattle, uh, where they circled the wagons around their perceived uh, self-interest of the hospital and put this poor nurse out uh, who later committed suicide. Uh, that, that is an extreme example of ultimate stupidity. Institutions of medicine have to not only have a heart, they also have to protect their people. And it's not for the purpose of circling the wagons legally, it's for the purpose of saying, we need the information here and we're gonna protect you because we want that information so we can make things not happen badly again, whatever went on. Uh, John, no, you're absolutely John, right. you brought, I'm so glad that you brought up uh, Kimberly Hyatt and I want for the, the, the audience to know what actually happened. So there's, a, there's an error, there's harm, there's a child that's harmed, but they released her HR record, something in her, from her HR record to the public. And that was, as we understand, reportedly, again, we're not privy to every little detail, but reportedly, uh, that's what led to her committing suicide uh, was this personal thing that happened. And so the second question right now, John, it's hard for me to believe that 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 anybody involved in something like this uh, should should not ask for their HR record. You, that that uh, I believe a chalk line needs to be dropped in prevention to make sure that your HR record is not papered and, and added material might be added to paint the picture of the narrative of the bad apple. Because um, what appears to be happening is when this occurs just like in a political campaign and, and an election, opposition research is generated immediately regarding the caregiver to determine their vulnerability and weakness as they go forward to uh, to settle a claim and get a gag order from the, 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 the plaintiff when there's a malpractice case. So second quick question, is it fair to say, I'd like to look at my HR file and make sure that you, uh, that you drop the chalk line so nothing can be added. And I'm gonna to go to Heather in a minute and just ask whether she thinks that's a good idea. Go ahead, John. Well, first of all, we need nationwide legislation that makes that your property, your personal property. You get to see it at any time. Secondly, if we want to uh, give more for DAs to do around the country, I've got one for them. Let's criminalize the act of, of falsifying somebody's record for any purpose Absolutely. whatsoever. Absolutely, John. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Heather, you've been involved in a number of our case studies, our composite case studies, and a number of our case studies of caregivers. Uh, do you believe that it's, it's really important for us to recognize the potential risk of the HR department? Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, as I listen to all you amazing um, experts out there, um, the, the one thing that comes to mind is I, I just feel like the old guard is still in charge. 
And we do need, we need a complete change of, of culture, not only within the legal system, I believe they're far behind when it comes to um, healthcare workers and protecting, protecting those healthcare workers. Like John said, um, if I want access to my HR file, I have to get um, HR 24 hours notice. And it is stated in the policy that, that those documents are the property of the, the corporation. Um, so that's very unsettling, especially um, in my case when, when things kind of went south, especially when I thought I was doing um, my job as a nurse, number one, being an advocate for my patient. Um, this business model in healthcare is something we really need to look at right now. <laughs> um, corporations have taken on this business model where we protect the entity first. Really not even the patient or those taking care of patients are of their concern, their immediate concern. Um, like Chuck said, it's circling the wagon and making sure that P's and Q's are um, in order when it comes to litigation, rather than fixing the problem and making sure that our front care healthcare workers are, are protected so that patient safety can, can um, be met at the bedside. So yeah, I think we, there's so much that can change. And as, as John said as well, it has to be done nationally. Yeah. It should be illegal for them to even pursue. I mean, granted, there should be investigations. There should be thorough root cause analysis. And like I've, I've preached, um, I've really advocated for like a blue book report, John, that you've worked so um, um, hard on in healthcare um, is to make sure that once those investigations have been carried out, there's been proof, you know, firm proof that there was no ill intent that right there, okay, we dealt with it, we're going to fix the problem, let's make sure that our, our nurse or our doctor, whoever it is, is well taken care of, because there's a lot of P PTSD at that point that we have to work through after yeah. that, um, and, and make sure that no one else can come in and, and pursue charges against that healthcare worker. So Heather, thank you so much for bringing that up. And I put up the slide of the article that brought you and I together. So Heather reached out to our webmaster uh, uh, regarding this article, Trust in the Five Rights of the Second Victim. Now I'll punctuate this by saying many believe it, it's not a good idea to call the caregiver the second, second victim because it diminishes the, the perception of the harm to the first victim. But um, this term was already in the literature and my focus was to say, wait a minute, the caregiver needs treatment that is just, and that ties to David Mark's great work, respect, understanding, and compassion, supportive care. That's the PST, P PTSD uh, bit, but then also transparency for that performance improvement. So Heather, comment there, and we'll go back to Chris to get your thoughts. Heather, are you yeah, what did you want me to comment on, Chuck? This, uh, this article that you had oh. read that kind of brought us together and you brought up the issue of after the event occurs, right. uh, and in your case, it wasn't the, the, any, an error that you made. It was more, uh, you know, what your, uh, an organization did. But, uh, you know, when we look at Eric Kropp and Julie Tao and we look at the, uh, a number of these cases, uh, the, the caregiver that makes the mistake is isolated at the worst time when they need psychological care and love and, and support, 
because we've made them the bad, the, the potential or the bad apple. Any thoughts there? And then to you, Chris, because I know that that could have helped Eric quite a bit. Most of the time when this happens, they terminate the employee and they're cut loose. They don't have any money uh, coming in and they're, they're not only feel guilt and feel terrible, but uh, they have no support systems, mind, body, and spirit. So uh, any thoughts there, Heather? We'll go to Chris and then back to John. Well, certainly, I think that's what caused me to reach out and to kind of be my own advocate. I just felt like there was, it was a very, very strange place to be as, as a nurse. In nursing school, they do not warn you about this. When you, when you advocate for a patient, that your organization might turn on you. That's something I just, it came out of left field for me. So I've, I dug deep and I, I believe there had to be somebody out there. Um, we obviously, every nurse kind of knows about um, Kimberly and her story. And, and I just, I, that's what I did. I almost felt led to, to search out help for myself. And, and there it was, I, it was right there. And I read it. And as I was reading it, I looked at my husband and I said, this is what I am going through. Everything in there speaks volumes about what, what, um, and not even just healthcare workers. I think there's a lot of people out there trying to make a difference in their organizations. And they just feel like, you know, the more they, they advocate, the more they fight, they do, they become alienated. Um, so there's your, there's your culture that we're, we're, we're kind of fighting against. So it, it was, a, it definitely helped me. And I think with COVID, there is a silver lining to every, um, um, tragedy there, there's this push towards, we need, we need, we need more help for, our, um, our healthcare workers. And so that's one thing that's come out of COVID that I really appreciate is I think, there are people that are starting to identify um, what we're actually going through. Well, Heather, and I want to take a moment to just thank you for the tremendous work you did to help us address COVID and address families of critical essential workers. And in, in your case, you were the one that spoke up about a medical error that occurred and then felt the retaliatory behavior that came back to you. Uh, uh, go to Chris and then to John. Chris? Um, just my my initial thoughts after hearing everyone speak, and again, these are just uh, my opinions, not being an attorney, but um, having been submersed working with clinician caregivers now, uh, essentially ever since my daughter's uh, uh, tragic passing. Um, clinician caregivers, I found to be the most empathetic, compassionate individuals on the planet. They didn't get into healthcare to harm people, certainly. They got into healthcare to help people, to, you know, improve people's lives. And, and, and I believe that it should, it should be wrong, that they should not be the Retaliatory behavior by facilities, even before root cause analyses is done on an event. Right, and Chris, I'm gonna because of time, I, I'm I'm gonna I address something that no one's heard of that you and I found out that day when I yeah. walked Eric up from the lobby. And John, this goes to the issue of the narrative of how the narrative can be shaped. 
I walked, I went down the elevator. You and I spent about 50 minutes together. Uh, we said a prayer together. We were really preparing ourselves. We didn't know what was going to happen when Eric came up and you were not sure how you were going to react. I mean, this right. it was not staged. I mean, this was a very, very raw emotional moment. And I am so proud of how you reacted, but we didn't know what was going to happen. And I went down the elevator and Eric didn't know what was going to happen. And I walked up to Eric in the Intercontinental Hotel at the, at the Cleveland Clinic. And Eric was sitting with his head down, twiddling his thumbs. Mm -hmm. and do you remember this? And so I said, I sat down with him and I started to talk to him. I said, Eric, how do you feel? And he goes, I'm really scared. I'm really anxious. I'm, and I say, it, it, it's going to be okay, Eric. I'm here with you. And that kind of thing. And he said, uh, when I'm really anxious, I twiddle my thumbs. Yeah. And, I, and it became an aha because John, when he was in the trial, he was painted as somebody who didn't care because he was twiddling his thumbs in, in court. And no one told him that every, mo every, every second, every image, every bit of video, I, I, I think of Dr. Kaplan uh, there, there in Washington who told me, I said, what did you learn about being a leader? And he goes, people are watching every second of what I do as a leader and I need to be a role model. Gary Kaplan, I thought, wow, that was amazing. We we're in front of 2000 people. I was going to introduce him at a, at, at a meeting or I can't remember what it was, but that's what he told me. And it was just a big aha. And when I, I couldn't believe it when I talked to you, Chris, how Eric was painted as this unfeeling cold person because he was twiddling his thumbs in the court. And I'll go back to you, John, but, uh, but John, this, this narrative, I, I want to leave everybody. We're on time to wrap up, but the issue is my takeaway is you need, you need legal counsel immediately. Number two is you really need to get all the documentation and make sure that nothing can be changed as you go forward. But number three is, there's someone preparing a narrative regarding either what you did right or what you did wrong. And you've got to be very, very careful on how you behave at every dimension, mind, body, and spirit, and be prepared. We are so vulnerable as caregivers. We trust everybody. As a cancer doctor, I trusted the pathologist when he looked at, this, at the slides. I trust the radiologist when he looks at the films. I trust the doctor that does a physical examination. We're not taught to challenge everybody on everything, although it happens periodically. So John, as we kind of finish up here, I want to make sure that everybody understands what we can do right now. Right now, you need to be, be prepared. You need to get legal counsel if something happens or even might happen. You need to be able to track all the documentation and everything you say, look, images, video can be shaped into the narrative, which is what? It's the story the prosecutor will tell that assembles the facts that makes the compelling argument of you being a bad apple if that's what they're going to do criminally, right, John? Is that are these reasonable ways? I mean, this sounds like tough stuff, but to me, I tell you, after be, being through this with so many families, this is the way it is. John, you're, you, we'll give you before Jennifer the last word. Uh, okay, you said it very well. And basically what it comes down to is this, this is an emergency situation until we can get legislation to change this nonsense of being able to prosecute somebody for, uh, for making a mistake. In the meantime, yes, you need to protect yourself and you need to understand, just as you said, a giant spotlight goes on when something goes wrong. You are on stage and you will not be off stage until the whole thing is solved. Remember in a couple of these instances, including the one involving the nurse in Florida, uh, she wasn't uh, actually prosecuted 
executed for a couple of years after the uh, after the you incident. Mean in, at, at Vanderbilt. In yes, in Vanderbilt, exactly. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I've said Florida, but at Vanderbilt. The basic idea here is this: we have an emergency because this is going to negatively uh, affect a lot of patient safety around the country, and that's that's putting it mildly until we get it fixed. Same thing for airline pilots. Same thing for professionals in all stripes. Uh, as long as people can come out and, and prosecute you for making a systemic or even an individual mistake that's honest, no intent to harm, uh, no recklessness, that uh, we've got a system that's not working. Uh, well, thank you all so very much. We're going to run an extended session for our online viewers and uh, as a podcast. But for those live today, we're going to wrap up uh, uh, on time. Uh, I want to give Jennifer Dingman, who's live, we recorded her yesterday, just in case her phone line and her internet was not there. But Jennifer, I see that you're on live. And uh, would you like me to play your recorded message? Or I would love to hear from you and your thoughts if you want to. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Denham. What a webinar today. This has just been so enlightening for me, and I'm hoping everyone listening. Um, criminal prosecution for an era is complete nonsense. It's insane and is going to cause so much trouble in the patient safety world. As a person who has lost a loved one to medical error and an advocate, I was outraged when I read the story of Rwanda Voight. Um, what no one really mentioned here today, uh, thank you, John, for mentioning that it took a little while for them to press charges, but it was only after the hospital was investigated that they started pointing big fingers at this poor nurse who made mistakes. Granted, people do make mistakes, but we have a terrible system right now that just leaves them open. I have known countless people in healthcare who have made mistakes and gotten in trouble after they've made the mistakes with their, their people and they're afraid to talk about it. So this is just gonna bring us uh, back 20 years if this isn't changed. And I just wanna thank all of our speakers and for everything that you said today, because this is, I'm very passionate about this and we need to also have trust in the patient community and seeing stories like this in the news, in the press, gives a lot of patients who have never experienced medical error a false sense of security, pointing fingers at poor individuals who make mistakes. People really believe, oh, well, they're not gonna make a mistake because they could go to jail, just like patients believe they're not gonna make a mistake because I can sue them. Both of those things are very complicated and it's not true most of the time. So this is not only harmful to our clinicians and providers, this is terribly harmful to the trust factor with our patients. We're not going to have engaged patients anymore because of things like this. So this is, gonna, this is a whole other area that we haven't even discussed, but it's going to actually do more harm than, it, than anybody could imagine doing something like this. So I'm looking forward to seeing these laws get passed soon. And if there's anything I and my colleagues can do to help, please feel free to ask me. Um, thank you all for being here today. This was wonderful. Please share the recording with your colleagues, friends, family members, and we'll see you next month. God bless everyone. Thank you very much, Jenny. And so as we say, when we conclude, we, 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 this is a real issue of we've got to fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Everyone is a patient, and everyone can be a caregiver. 
And uh, we want to thank you very much. We are continuing with our uh, COVID uh, community of practice the first Thursday of every month. It looks like we're having another surge. We're so grateful for all the great work that our scientists and our doctors and nurses have been uh, helping us with on it. We'll continue with that. And we are going to continue and take a deep dive on this topic and really start to develop checklists and get more lawyers, more doctors, more administrators involved so that we know what to do right away because these laws will take time, but we've got care caregivers who are vulnerable right now and uh, our prayers go out to them. Chris Jerry, thank you so much for your wonderful uh, the sharing today and being such a great hero of ours. Thank you, John, for always being uh, so uh, on it and, and helping us understand uh, what's going on to Dr. Boats and Chief Adcox. Thank you for your recorded message last night. Um, and uh, uh, Jenny Dingman, and as well, uh, Heather Foster for having the cor courage to step up uh, and, and to speak up for nurses. We thank all of you. God bless and have a great uh, month. Bye-bye.